does that mean? What does that mean? We're reconciled by the death of his son, but now that we're reconciled by the death of his son, we're reconciled by his life. What does that mean? Jeremy. That's exactly right. Yeah. So the death of Christ with our sin on him clears us from the weight and the guilt and the shame of sin. Right? But now we are morally what? Neutral. Can God let morally neutral people into his presence? He cannot. Okay? Righteous perfection uh, is in the is in the presence of God. So Jesus' life, Jesus' righteousness being imputed to us is just as important as our guilt being imputed to him. This is a two-way exchange. Calvin calls it the great exchange. And in my own experience, I think I've floated this trial balloon out before, but in my own experience, and this isn't right or wrong, this is an experiential question, who grew up with a very clear view that Jesus died for your sins and your sins get put on Christ and when he dies, your sins are forgiven? Uh, that was ABCs to me, Christian ABCs. Who had an equally clear picture that Jesus' righteousness got imputed to you so that you are morally perfect from a legal standpoint? I can't put my hand up. I was a very big boy when I learned that, probably in my 20s. Irene. Right, okay, and that's actually interesting because I grew up, lieber Vater, mach mich fram, which would be the same thing, right? Make me holy, dass ich in den Himmel come, that I can come into heaven. So I guess in a roundabout way, but my conception of make me holy wasn't don't cover me in your holiness, it's make me behave better, right? That's a different, do you see there's different views of holiness in view here? One is my moral performance, try harder, pedal faster, right? Uh, and the other is, it's a gift. You're covered in righteousness. This is gift. So even morally poor performers can in fact make it to heaven because they are perfect. Despite their poor moral performance. Pete.
No, that's good. That's good. Very good. And I remember that feeling too. You just feel the tension building when you're a kid and you know you're asking for a spanking. And mom and dad know you're asking for a spanking and you just, because you're an obnoxious seven-year-old boy, you just can't help yourself. So you have to lean into it even harder rather than back off. I've heard this from reports from seven-year-old boys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've heard multiple people report this phenomenon to me. But there is just this incredible peace when it's finally time and dad takes you up to the room and you get shocked and then it's like the air is clear in the house again. That's right. the conversation goes that way one book I would recommend for parents we've given it out to our new parents is a book by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart absolutely wonderful book and it deals with why do we spank it's not just so dad can release his frustration it's not just to hurt a child although hurting a two-year-old to know that sin hurts is actually very important but it talks about the shepherding aspect a spanking is a reminder that sin is going to kill your heart Sin hurts your heart. So I'm going to hurt your bum now so you know that sin hurts. Sin kills. And then there's that restoration aspect afterward, right? That is, a, that is the gospel in miniature, really, is what it is. No, that's good. So we've drawn attention to verses like Romans 5.10 enough times. Are we starting to understand how important the righteousness of Christ is to be applied to us people? That we're actually morally perfect when we go into God's judgment? Despite our performance? Or does that still seem like a foreign concept or a strange concept? If your sins are forgiven, you are morally perfect in God's forensic judgment. Stretch or are we getting it? Almost like grace is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Good. Let's keep moving. He unites them to himself by his spirit and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey. Now verse 30, or note 39 here. Who wants to take John 17 verse 6? Ray, Ephesians 1 verse 9, Brooklyn, 1 John 5 20, Caleb, okay, go ahead, let's start at John 17 6. Okay. So, Ray, what, what you just read, whose will is ultimate in the salvation of sinners? God's. And then we can just do what we want, right? We don't have to obey. 
because it's all God's operation. No. What, how does this end? They have kept your word. Okay? So all our sin goes on to Christ. All his righteousness comes on to us. So from a forensic legal standpoint in God's courtroom, there is no guilt. There is absolute perfect 100% righteous holiness that God sees because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. But then sanctification is working that out. Now, on this side of glory, our actions are never going to match our legal status. Okay? But the goal of the Christian life is to get those in alignment, that our behavior starts to match the way God sees us. That is sanctification. And that's not a straight line. If justification is like a light switch, it's off and then it's on. Your sanctification is like a dimmer switch. Sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker. Uh, It's not perfect until, of course, the resurrection at which it is made perfect. But this is the second link in, well, more than the second link. It's the link that follows justification is growing in holiness. And you see it in a verse like this. And I'll stop right there. This cause and effect between justification and sanctification, is that becoming, or is that a clear concept? You can't, you can't divorce them, but they're not the same thing. Justification is not sanctification, and vice versa. Are we getting that? Okay. Now, can you divorce sanctification from justification? Can you be a carnal Christian? You cannot. You cannot. In the 1980s, when I was a kid, there was a... Uh, a movement, called, well, came to later be called No Lordship Salvation. It's kind of the, the thing that thrust John MacArthur on center stage. He wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus uh, later on. And he was in a controversy with a man uh, by the name of Zane Hodges, who taught that if salvation is by grace alone, that means you don't have to have Jesus as Lord of your life. You can just be saved. Easy believism. So you just, you go to camp, you make a decision for Christ, that's it. That's it. You're saved, eternally. You're eternally secure, okay? And, and of course, as a Reformed guy, I do believe people cannot lose their justification, but I also believe that fruit is necessary. And people like Zane Hodges were teaching that if fruit is necessary, then salvation is no longer by grace alone. And so people... As long as they made a decision somewhere in their life, as long as they signed a card or had an experience at camp or whatever, they're good to go regardless of fruit. And Dr. MacArthur said that is absolutely not the gospel. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There may be Christians with varying degrees of fruit or seasons of sin and setback, but there is no such thing as a Christian who does not get sanctified. If there's no progress whatsoever in your life, you're not a Christian. You have not been saved, okay? We're all not going to finish at the same place, and we're all going to have seasons of struggle. But the Christian life necessarily includes holiness, growing in holiness, growing in fruitfulness. Jeremy. Yep, you're still saved. Yep. Yep, even if you deconvert officially.
They'd have to essentially become theoretical to some degree. And where you hear this on a popular level, who's heard this? I know they're saved, but they haven't yet made Jesus Lord of their life. Has anyone heard something like that? I've heard that, right? Yeah, he's saved, but he hasn't made Jesus Lord of his life yet. Okay, well, then he's not saved. Okay, you can't have Jesus as Savior without also having him as Lord. It's a package deal. His claims to authority are exhaustive. Okay, so there is no such thing as two-step justification. There's justification which naturally flows into sanctification. Uh, and you cannot take salvation and then say sanctification is optional. It's not. If you've been redeemed, if your heart has been made new, you want to grow in holiness. You want to kill sin, however imperfectly that looks. <clears throat> and I'll maybe leave that there, unless there's more discussion on that. Okay, well, he was saying with this no lordship salvation view, even if you officially deconvert and say, I'm Muslim now, you're still going to heaven. Which is, it is baloney. Yeah, it is. But, yeah, yes, it is. But, but this was being advocated. And this is where John MacArthur famously made his break from the extreme forms of dispensational theology, which is where that comes from, which is a whole big topic that we won't get into. But this is where, if you know the name John MacArthur, this is what got him his platform in the 80s was fighting on the side of the angels on this one. Okay. Oh, was there a hand here? Okay. All right, let's keep going then. Uh, Ephesians 1 verse 9. Okay, very good. So this all happens through who, Brooklyn? In Christ, yep, in Christ. You read lots in the Bible about in Christ, being in Christ, union with Christ. And so this all happens through Christ. And then 1 John 5.20, who had that? That was Caleb. Go ahead, Caleb. Okay, very good. So we've been given understanding from him who is true. Okay, and so again, what Caleb just read is that this also happens in Christ. This isn't a process that can happen apart from Christ. It happens in Christ, in our union and our connection to Christ. Okay, so this is how he persuade, persuades us to believe and obey. Are we good to move on? More discussion on this? Okay, then let's keep going. And he governs their hearts by his word and spirit. And who wants to take Romans 8, 9 through 14? Kenan.
Okay. So, Keenan, do you read in there the possibility of a carnal Christian who takes salvation but then doesn't transform their life? It's a process. But there's clearly obedience and transformation that's happening in here, right? And then lastly, in verse 14 there, what did you read? Who are the sons of God? Yeah, and if the Spirit's in you, is he going to leave your sin addressed? Unaddressed or addressed? Yeah. Does that mean you're going to be sinlessly perfect three weeks after your conversion? Or once you're 92 and you've been practicing your sanctification for a while? No. No, it's always imperfect. It's always imperfect. And there's another view, I mean, on the opposite end of this no lordship salvation. Who's heard of Christian perfectionism? Okay. Um, this is kind of unique to Wesleyan or Methodist theology, um, where John Wesley, and this is where he went from being a gospel man to his theology wasn't great, taught that you could be sinlessly perfect. You could nullify all knowing sin out of your life. And so the only sin that Christians commit are accidental sins. Okay. And I think that's claiming too much. Okay. Uh, I spent a number of years as a member in a Nazarene church, which is a Wesleyan holiness church. And they, they clearly taught sinless perfection. Um, that, uh, and I had a bus driver in a different kind of a church background who told me he hadn't sinned in 14 years. And I'm thinking, you just broke number eight, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, no, Lisa. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So again, sinless perfection. This also came to be known, so I'm talking now kind of in Wesleyan Methodist kind of circles, Nazarene circles. Um, but then there was another movement in England. This goes back, the older people might remember this. Who's ever heard of Keswick theology? And I'll popularize this. Who's ever heard of let go and let God? Ugh. Okay, good. That's the right reaction. <laughs> if someone had a gut reaction to that. Yeah. <laughs> it's too stereotypical. It's too cliche. Okay. Let go and let God was Keswick theology, which was basically you just stay passive. God will make you not perfect in terms of legal declaration, which we've been talking about here, but God will make you perfect in terms of your moral behavior. So your job is to just kind of quit trying. And God will just do it automatically. Okay? Um, and this, if you're talking about well-known names, this is J.I. Packer said he grew up in this movement in England in the 1950s and he was so filled with despair he almost left the faith entirely because he started to realize he was not perfect. Okay? J.I. Packer found the Reformation. He found... Uh, a reformed kind of conservative expression of the Anglican church and he was a very faithful gospel-centered Anglican man to his death but he said that Keswick movement almost killed him spiritually and and he made a ministry out of preaching against Christian perfectionism um, and sharing the gospel rather so there's a ditch on either side here there's Christian perfectionism which is claiming too much 
and there's the no lordship salvation, which is claiming too little. Uh, we want to say God's legal declaration is all your guilt is gone and you are perfect. In my courtroom, I declare you perfectly righteous because you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Uh, and I'm not surprised when your moral performance doesn't match up to the way I see you. Okay? But your life should be to grow in conformity over time. Lisa. Amen. Yeah, and this, that's an important realization. Michael Horton always says the gospel is for Christians too. Right? Because Christians sin. Yeah, the gospel is for Christians. Not just for conversion. Amen. And then it goes on here. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom. And who wants to take Psalm 110.1? should be able to do that by memory from here by now. Tim's got that. 1 Corinthians 15. Who wants to take that? Verses 25 and 26. Howard's got that. All right. Tim, Psalm 110.1. Okay. So what is one of the consequences of the Lordship of Christ, Tim? Enemies are destroyed, yes. Okay? And I, I think a faithful application of this is to say this isn't just cosmic and this isn't just personal. This is both. Okay? If Christ is sitting at the throne uh, of an individual person, their enemies, lust, lying, anger, will be put to death. And this is also true on the cosmic scale. All God's enemies will be put to death. There's going to be the death of cancer one day. Okay? There's going to be the death of war one day. There's going to be the death of unjust weights and measures one day. Okay? And sanctification is getting from there to here, from fall to redemption. But we have to make private application here too, right? Uh, or I shouldn't say private. Personal application. Absolutely. Uh, who had First Corinthians? Howard? Okay, he reigns. Okay, so where is Christ right now, Howard? R reigning at the right hand of the Father, right? Okay, and he's going to stay there until? Till when? That's right. So Christ is reigning. He's on this mission, putting all his enemies under his feet, and when he returns, the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. It's the last stain of corruption uh, on a fallen world. But so the reign of Christ is important here in several ones, in several instances. One, to understand cosmically what's going on in the world. And second, again, to make the personal application of this, Christ is reigning. Right? Christ is killing Howard's sin, Christ is killing Matt's sin. Okay? And the last enemy, both cosmically and personally, what's the last enemy you're going to face in your life? Death. You're going to face death. Everyone here is going to face death. That's the last enemy, personally and cosmically. And then this rule is made perfect. 
there's nothing more to do after that. It's been restored. Discussion on that. Questions on that. Okay. So starting to make sense, you cannot remove the killing of sin from the Lordship of Christ. Okay. The Lordship of Christ is about killing sin, about driving it away. And he uses methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by the free and absolute grace apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. Now let's look. Who wants to take John 3.8? Caleb, and who's got Ephesians 1.8? Sonia. All right, so John 3, verse 8. Okay. What's that saying, Caleb? Can you see the wind? No. How do you know the wind is there? The grass is moving, trees are moving, right? Yeah. So, can we see with our eyes the movement of the Holy Spirit? No. No, you can't. Can you see when the Holy Spirit regenerates somebody? You can see it in the effects, right? We can't see the heart change, right? We can't see the change in the new nature. But what do you see? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. This guy thought sin was a joke before, right? Now he's working at it imperfectly, right? So you see, you see the effects, right? And I think what this is driving at is here, you do see the effects, you do see the effects. People are transformed by the gospel, however slowly and however imperfectly. But it does happen. It is real. And then Ephesians 1.8. Okay, good. Okay, very good. Okay, so again, this is according to his grace, according to his purposes, through the blood of Christ, okay? And so this is all by grace. Even your effort is by grace. Even the fact that you are an active participant in killing sin is a gift of grace, okay? Your, your contribution is a gift from God, so we can say yes and amen both to that this is all by grace and you must be involved. It's actually you putting your faith in Christ. It's actually you fighting sin. It's you. No one's going to do it for you. Even the Holy Spirit doesn't do it for you. He does it through you. See the difference? Okay? So this isn't automatic. Don't let go and let God. Okay? Trust in God and then get to work is what's being taught here. So we've wrapped that up now. Any more discussion on this or questions on this? Nope, then let's see if we can do section 9 yet and then we'll call it a morning. Okay, so again, the chapter's about Christ's mediatorial role. And so it says here, this office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God. 
This office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part. And who wants to read 1 Timothy 2? Brooklyn. Okay, so that's pretty clear. One mediator, okay, one go-between. There's only one God-man. That should seem obvious, but why would they include something like this here? What's that? Okay, very good. So further revelation, right? That's apart from Christ. Yeah, that would be a big one. Yep. Jeremy? Catholicism. Yep. And that's probably, given the period in history, was probably a big one in their mind, right? Because how do you refer to the Pope? Holy Father. Yep. The worst one, an altar Christus, another Christ. That's a bad title. Mary as mediatrix, yep, where there's like another mediator. We can't even go to the first mediator, so sometimes we pray through Mary to get to the... We need a mediator to get to the mediator to get to God. And sometimes we can't even get that far, so we chant to the saints, right? So-and-so pray, and, you, and it's actually kind of aesthetically beautiful if you're in a Catholic Mass, right? And so-and-so pray for us, right? The chanting, asking, asking these departed saints to pray for us, to go as an in-between, Okay. Aesthetically, it's nice, but the, what's behind it would set up other mediators other than just the person of Christ himself, right? Yeah. So who's ready? To, if, if Francis would walk in here, who would be ready to call him an altar Christus, another Christ? No one? <laughs> Howard might have another name for him. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I think, even, I think even the cardinals that surround him are ready to call him something else. He is the uh, Donald Trump of church government. He says something wild, and then all the smart people rush to the microphone and clarify what, what Francis actually meant. Because, of course, he's infallible, and his church is infallible. And so when Pope Francis says, and he does this often, when he says things that are clearly opposed to Roman Catholic theology, now you have an unstoppable force colliding with an immovable object. Okay, the laws of physics are about to be broken. An infallible pope going against an infallible church. That's going to be a big problem. Okay? And so the cardinals go and they clarify and they massage what Francis says. And sometimes they have to do this actually on the pope jet where they're, they're oh, you just see them, oh no. <laughs> then they all run to the cameras and the microphone and start explaining what Francis actually meant because his English isn't very good. So, uh, another one, that, another title, uh, Anglicans use this too, but they don't mean the same thing by it, is the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ. Okay, so this isn't quite as extreme as an altar Christus, uh, but this is uh, the representative of Christ. And according to this view, and we'll get to this in Matthew actually, once we're about in chapter 16, um, where the keys are given to the apostles, and in Roman Catholicism, that means they're given to Peter. And whoever sits on Peter's throne has the keys to heaven. Okay, so the Pope is the successor of Peter in Rome, uh, according to this view. Uh, and so the Pope finally has the keys to, to the kingdom. And he can expel or let in 
uh, at his disposal. And this leads to all kinds of weird and wonderful things like the treasury of merit and all kinds of other things. Um, so I think that's probably top of what's in view here is setting up a church or a, a figure in the church as a mediator. But Howard is absolutely correct. It's easy to kind of kick at Rome and, and that period of history, but I don't think that's particularly pressing in our circumstance. I don't actually think Rome is the biggest threat we've got as evangelical Christians. I think Howard's barking up the right tree if we're going to be self-reflective and say which sins are actually <laughs> a threat to us. And Howard mentioned an important one. Okay, further revelation. Extra scriptural revelation. Extra biblical revelation. Would set up another authority. Even if it's a partial one. What else? Hugh. Well, okay, and so they're using the Old Testament saints as saying they didn't need a mediator. I think, I mean, it's going to be hard if they don't believe in the divinity of Christ, then they probably won't believe in pre-incarnate Christ and so forth. But, But I think the Old Testament saints did need a mediator. They needed a burning bush. They needed an ark. They needed a tabernacle. They needed an angel to wrestle with. They needed a fourth man in a furnace. Right? I, they did have a mediator, and I think Christ was there. I think, I think Jacob wrestled with Jesus all night. I think Daniel's fourth man is Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, I think some of these angelic visitors, some have even said that the, the angelic visitors to uh, Abram and Sarah, that one of them was Christ, and that's entirely possible. Uh, I think Melchizedek was Christ. So he was there in the shadows, but they still couldn't go directly to God, Right? Um, and one way that that's illustrated quite graphically is Moses asks to see God. And I don't know if you recall that account, right? What, what does he do? God says, you can't look at me. You're going to die if you see me. So out of mercy, I'm going to hide you in a rock. I'm going to cover it so you don't see too much. And then I'm just going to walk by and you're going to see my back parts. And Moses gets back to the people and Moses the aura around him is blinding to the people who sees the backwards part of God through a covering in a rock. There's mediation there. Okay? Even Moses would have died if he had seen God. Okay? Even the angels a few weeks ago, I think I just didn't preach specifically on that. Well, maybe it was even just last week. Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, and you see the angels with six wings, right? Two are covering their eyes. Unfallen angels aren't allowed to look at God. He's too pure. He's too perfect. He's too glorious. Even angels need wings to mediate, to stop the blinding holiness of God. It's too much. So how much more is it too much for us? And that's probably another one here, right? So if you didn't hear Howard in the back, Howard said, to follow up on your point, that means we can't mediate for ourselves. 
right? The, how does the saying go? The man who represents him court, himself in court has a fool for a client, right? <laughs> if, you're gonna, if you're going to stand in God's witness stand, and God's question is, why should I let you into my presence? If your answer starts with the word I, guess where you're not going? read about that in Matthew 7. Oh, we cast out spirits. We prophesied. What does Jesus say to those people? I, 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 I. Look what I did. Look what I did. Look what I did for the kingdom. Jesus says, get away from me. I never knew you. When you thought you were prophesying, when you thought you were casting out demons, you were a demon. I never knew you. I had no part in you. Get away from me forever. Their defense started with the word I. How does a Christian answer the question? You're in God's witness stand and your whole life is before your eyes. Because of Christ. Right? You claim the blood of Christ. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Amen. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the answer you give. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Okay? The old hymns, I forget which preacher said today, said go to your average church now and scrap the sermon. This might have been Alistair Begg. Scrap the sermon. Just sing ten old hymns. And you'll get more theology that way (laughs) than you will in the typical sermon. Right? The old hymns put the gospel out. And there's, uh, I'm not just saying old. There's new hymns that do the same thing. But there's rich music that conveys these truths in memorable, repetitious form and gets it into us. Okay? Sing Rock of Ages enough times that you know that helpless we come to Jesus for dress. We must. Was there a hand back here? Marina. So the old system worked with typology. It worked with kind of tangible, visible things to teach about the coming Christ. So in substance, in terms of what's happening inside the Trinity, nothing has changed. Right? God's plan of redemption is, is unaltered. But before the, the visible coming of Christ, we have these little appearances, right? like Melchizedek, like Jacob wrestling with this messenger, Uh, we have that, but we also have a whole entire system of types and shadows to help train the people, to help get them ready, right? And we read these stories, and this is why we need to read our Old Testament, is to see through those pictures, what are we learning about Christ? And because we're slow learners, we need approximately 4,000 years of hearing the same stories to still not understand it. Okay, that's the way we learn. But every year, if there's a little girl asking her daddy, Daddy, why do you take the sweetest little lamb and kill it? Why are we doing it? What do these stones mean? Why is there a man covered in blood? 
And then why do the priests get to eat a little bit afterward? Communion. Okay? God shares in his blessings. What do these things mean? What's the meaning of Noah's Ark? What's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of that? And these stories are there to start creating categories in our minds so we have ways of thinking and talking about Christ's work. Right? We need these types and shadows. And I, I think it shows how slow we learn because we still see just glimpses of Christ. Right? But to see that these prophets, priests, and kings are all teaching us something about Christ and he fulfills and terminates those offices perfectly, uh, I think is significant. But we need those stories to get those patterns and ways of thinking into our head. Sin equals death. Sin equals blood. Okay? Does that make sense? And we've talked about that lots, but I think it's worth talking about. And, and again, maybe I'm projecting my experience on other people, but I had the unfortunate experience of learning the Old Testament stories like moral tales. Okay? And there are moral lessons to be learned there. But I basically learned dare to be a Daniel. Okay, that's good. It's good to be courageous. It's good to stand against the tide of culture. But there was no Christ in the story of Daniel. There was just Daniel's courage. Okay? There was no Psalm 110.1 in the conquest of Jericho. There was just walls that fell. And God, it was miraculous, of course. But there was no Psalm 110.1 there for me growing up. And maybe I'm projecting that. But there was a lot of Christless storytelling to me in the Old Testament as a kid. And I don't know if that's your experience. I'll throw that out there. And I'm not blaming anyone, I'm sure this got lost in history honestly enough, but I think we have a task and an opportunity as churches today to reclaim this. This isn't new. This isn't some imaginative minds getting to work and finding Christ in these stories. This is old as old, but somehow we've forgotten it. Am I being unfair to say I learned those stories that way? Caleb. I think you're right. Caleb just said, I think that's why people value the New Testament more than the Old Testament. Right? And if we're understanding it properly, they're both the Word of God. Right? Why don't we bring it in for landing and then we can have some coffee. Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the way you have ordered history as a teacher. And the way you have woven in every detail of every story in our Old Testament to show us how every road leads to you. Lord, and I pray that we would have eyes to see that. I pray that even as we read... Uh, 
what seem like the most obscure parts of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you in there and how this is coming to its climactic moment at your advent. Lord, and then as we consider our own lives and what it means that you are not just Savior, but you are also Lord and you are reigning, putting your enemies to death until we face our final enemy, which is death. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that boldness, that as we consider how to fight sin in our own lives, we wouldn't try to do it on our own steam, or that we wouldn't despair, or worst of all, make friends with our sin. Lord, but I pray that by your spirit, that we would have a a confident joy as we slay dragons and as we kill serpents. Lord, knowing that you are on the throne, you are empowering us, and you are doing this not for us, but you are doing it through us. Lord, give us a happy uh, joy. Make us happy warriors as we kill sin in our own lives and also as we press the gospel out to make you known in the corners of the world. Lord, I pray for each one here. I pray for personal sanctification and I pray that you would also use us to shine light into the darkness around us. We commit this uh, and the rest of this morning into your kind and fatherly hands. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.